You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hey everyone, we're pleased to announce that this episode of the podcast is sponsored by the Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War. Do you have an interest in the Civil War? Founded in 1881, the Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War is a congressionally chartered, charitable, fraternal organization that preserves the history and legacy of the Union veterans who fought during the Civil War to preserve the Union and end slavery. When you join, you enter a national network of men who form lifelong bonds, honor their heroic ancestors, and promote historic preservation, education, and patriotism in their communities. Based on the principles of fraternity, charity, and loyalty, they accept both descendants of Civil War veterans and non-descendants. Visit them today at www.suvcw.org or email them at join at suvcw.org. The views, information, or opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 422 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all will recall, we used the last episode to look at Wheeler's October raid. The Confederate commander Braxton Bragg ordered that cavalry raid as an attempt to interdict the Federal supply line and generally make life more difficult for the Yankees hunkered down in their defensive lines at Chattanooga. Joe Wheeler's greatest success came at the very beginning of the operation when he destroyed an immense enemy wagon train loaded with supplies headed for Chattanooga. That was a notable success. However, by the end of the raid, Wheeler came within a hair's breadth of disaster as the Federals were closing in on his column and they almost succeeded in trapping him near Shelbyville. But even apart from Wheeler's raid, things were bad enough as it was for the Federals at Chattanooga. In the last episode, we mentioned that it started to rain on October 1st, and a long spell of dry weather gave way to an even longer spell of very, very wet weather. Besides making everyone cold, wet, and miserable, the seemingly ceaseless rain turned the Yankees 
already tenuous supply route into Chattanooga, the awful dirt road over Walden's Ridge, into a 60-mile-long ribbon of mud. Mules mired up to their bellies, and wagons bogged down in the slimy orange-brown muck, and it took no expert in logistics to tell that there was no way this route could possibly supply the amount of food and forage needed by the Federals defending Chattanooga. Mules died by the hundreds from exhaustion hauling the wagons through the mud and from hunger since forage was scarce. Numerous soldiers noted an unusual sight in letters and diaries that along the route the starving animals had chewed the bark entirely off many trees as high as they could reach. Some mules fell to their deaths from the narrow, mud-slick mountain road, and in other, more level spots, the way was lined with the rotting carcasses of animals that had died in the wagon traces and been shoved to the side of the road. As the rain continued to fall, and as mules foundered and wagons broke down all along the route back to Bridgeport, Alabama, the flow of supplies into Chattanooga dwindled to a trickle. Before long, some federal units manning the defensive lines at Chattanooga had no rations to issue to the troops, and within days the morale of the Army of the Cumberland began to drop. Even when the officers were able to obtain rations for their men, it was generally a good deal less than the regulation issue. On October 2nd, William Rosecrans formally placed the Army on two-thirds rations. But Lieutenant Chesley Mossman of the 59th Illinois wrote in his diary that his own regiment had already been reduced to half rations for several days, when they could get anything at all, that is. In some units, the allotment soon dropped to one-fourth the normal amount. A time of near starvation followed for the Army of the Cumberland, as the men were forced to subsist on very little besides hardtack, and very little of that. So bad was the situation within the Union lines that guards had to be posted over the Army's horses and mules to prevent hungry soldiers from stealing the few ears of corn allotted to the starving beasts. The 36th Illinois Regimental History noted that in October, quote, it seemed as though the heavens had turned to water. The 60 miles between Chattanooga and Bridgeport required a longer time with every trip, and the animals grew more and more exhausted with incessant labor and lack of forage. The rations served out to the men were steadily reduced. The possibility of being starved out stared us in the face. William Rosecrans had predicted that when the promised reinforcements arrived on the scene, he would retake Lookout Mountain, thus improving the Army's supply situation. Now, however, Old Rosie found that his supply problems were preventing the forwarding of those reinforcements to Chattanooga. By the first week of October, the lead elements of the troops being sent down from the Army of the Potomac were at Bridgeport in northeast Alabama, but Rosecrans couldn't use them because the presence in Chattanooga of another 15,000 mouths to feed 
would have pushed the garrison over the edge into outright starvation long before a new supply line could be opened. At Chattanooga, hunger gnawed at federal morale. One officer wrote, quote, Never in the history of the Army of the Cumberland had the spirit of its officers and men been more depressed. The Battle of Chickamauga had not only been fought and lost, but we also lost what was more than a losing battle. We have lost confidence in our commander. For the first time, the men began to doubt that Rosecrans would get them through the current crisis. Ironically, Confederate morale was also low, and for some of the same reasons, primarily lack of food. The single-track railroad between Atlanta and Chattanooga had never been fully adequate to supply the Army of Tennessee. And now, with reinforcements from Mississippi, East Tennessee, and Virginia having been added to his army, Braxton Bragg found that the transportation and commissary system simply couldn't keep them all fed. On top of that, to place the Federals at Chattanooga in a state of limited siege and force the Yankees to use that terrible route over Walden's Ridge to get supplies into the place, Bragg had deployed his forces on an eight-mile-long line that ran along the foot of Missionary Ridge, then through the valley of Chickamauga Creek to Lookout Mountain and beyond. The difficulties in using the Army's inadequate number of wagons to haul supplies over such rugged terrain, even from the railhead just a dozen or so miles away at Catoosa Station, proved extremely challenging and caused an acute shortage in the rations being delivered to the rebel soldiers on the front line. The Confederates were better off than the Yankees trapped in Chattanooga, but they weren't eating particularly well for all that, and they weren't happy about the present situation. For a period of time in October and November, the mutual low morale of the two armies led to what one participant called, quote, a queer kind of war. The Federal and Confederate troops began to engage in wholesale fraternization across the supposedly hostile battle lines, but the siege hadn't begun that way. During the days immediately following the rebel occupation of the ground around Chattanooga, sharp skirmishing had flared up as both sides adjusted their lines, and constant sniping made standing picket duty dangerous. However, by early October, the situation on the front lines had changed. As hunger and the miserable weather affected everyone without regard to side, the soldiers made an informal enlisted man's agreement that they would do no firing unless there was an actual general advance. And so pickets met between the lines, chatted, swapped coffee, tobacco, newspapers, and other items, and even played cards. Even some of the officers got into the spirit of things. When Confederate Brigadier General Micah Jenkins thought the Federals opposite his division's position had their pickets deployed on his side, that is, the west side of Chattanooga Creek, instead of launching an attack to push them back, he simply sent over a messenger under a white flag asking if the two sides couldn't be content to stay on their own sides of the creek. No man's land discussions could reveal much about the soldier's state of mind. For example, a Confederate enlisted man, 
a member of the Texas Brigade from the Army of Northern Virginia, admitted to an Illinoisan that at Chickamauga, quote, we didn't whip you fellows much. The low morale that was behind the widespread fraternization was also reflected in the statements of some soldiers, especially on the Confederate side, that they saw no reason to continue the war. One rebel soldier cursed the war for a, quote, piece of foolishness, end quote, and suggested to his federal counterpart, let's all quit and go home. The federal allowed that there was, quote unquote, some truth in the rebel soldiers' statements. A Confederate officer wrote, quote, if the terms of peace had been left to the men who faced each other in battle day after day, they would have stopped the war at once on terms acceptable to both sides. He was wrong, of course, since the opposing governments would have much different views on the matter. But nevertheless, for this particular collection of soldiers at Chattanooga, they might just have stopped it, or at least their involvement in it, on any terms or no terms. They were hungry, wet, and cold. As the fog, chill, and rain of autumn settled down in earnest over the mountains of southeast Tennessee, Soldiers in varied shades of blue, gray, and butternut endured the same hardships. One of them wrote, I was never tired of the service before, but I am pretty near it now. Will this rain never cease? Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavours, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites, Come, visit ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture.
On the scene in southeast Tennessee, the soldiers of both sides were miserable, but discontent prevailed in Washington, D.C. as well. More and more members of the Lincoln administration were coming to have doubts about William Rosecrans' ability to pull the Army of the Cumberland through the present crisis and hold on to Chattanooga. Really, Rosecrans' days had probably been numbered since his flight from the battlefield at Chickamauga, while a good part of his army was still fighting there. The reality was that an officer who left a battlefield on which his troops were still fighting and fled 13 miles to the rear simply didn't have much future as a general. The two federal corps commanders who had been guilty of that offense had gotten short shrift. In fact, even before the calendar turned from September to October, Alexander McCook's 20th Corps and Thomas Crittenden's 21st Corps had been consolidated into a single new formation, the 4th Corps, to be commanded by Gordon Granger, who had marched to the sound of the guns on the last day of the battle and arrived in time to provide crucial support to George Thomas's defense of Horseshoe Ridge. McCook and Crittenden were relieved of command and held no other comparably significant position for the remainder of the war. Their sacking was ominous for William Rosecrans, especially since Secretary of War Edwin Stanton noted that both generals, quote, made pretty good time away from the fight at Chickamauga, but Rosecrans beat them both. We mentioned previously that Stanton's man on the scene at Chattanooga Assistant Secretary of War Charles Dana, never missed an opportunity in his telegrams to his boss to paint Rosecrans in the worst possible light. We also said that Rosecrans' own communications with Washington didn't inspire confidence, alternating as they did between hope and despair. Between Dana's unrelenting criticism and his own failure to project confidence, it appeared clear to everyone in Washington that William Rosecrans had badly dropped the ball at Chickamauga, suffered defeat, and allowed himself to be bottled up at Chattanooga, ineffectually making plans to keep his army supplied even while the army starved. Stanton and General-in-Chief Henry Halleck quickly lost confidence in Rosecrans' ability to see the Army of the Cumberland through the present crisis at Chattanooga. Secretary of the Treasury Salmon Chase and Navy Secretary Gideon Wells soon joined his critics, and as early as September 27th, Secretary of State William Seward suggested that Rosecrans be relieved of command. Besides his own poor performance at Chickamauga, alarming dispatches from Chattanooga, and the criticism of Charles Dana, Rosecrans' fate may have been affected by two other factors. One of these was a rumor passed along by Charles Dana. Dana told Stanton that what he heard around Army headquarters led him to believe that Rosecrans, in writing his official report of the battle and campaign of Chickamauga, would attempt to shift the blame for the defeat from himself to his superiors in Washington. Any such suggestion would have been absurd, of course, and in the end, Rosecrans didn't do anything of the sort in his report, but even the possibility that he was considering it would surely have filled Abraham Lincoln with dismay. 
The president had already had his fill of failed generals who tried to make it seem that all of their mistakes and misfortunes in the field were someone else's fault, and who spent more time and effort dodging blame than devising ways to defeat the rebels. The second factor that may have affected Rosecrans' fate is more complicated and shows that with the Civil War, there was an inextricable link between military affairs and political matters, and that political goings-on often counted as much as what happened on a battlefield. Back in May, Department of the Ohio Commander Ambrose Burnside had ordered the arrest of a Democratic Ohio politician named Clement Vallandingham for, quote, declaring disloyal sentiments and opinions with the object and purpose of weakening the power of the government in its efforts to suppress the unlawful rebellion. A military commission found Vallandingham to be guilty and sentenced him to imprisonment for the duration of the war. Abraham Lincoln commuted this sentence to banishment to the Confederacy. But the rebels weren't all that interested in keeping Vallandingham and he managed to slip out of the south and into Canada, where from the north shore of Lake Erie, he got himself the Democratic Party's nomination for governor of Ohio in that fall's elections to run against Republican John Brow. Although Abraham Lincoln wondered how, quote, one genuine American would or could be induced to vote for such a man as Vallandingham, end quote, The president also recognized that the actions of Ohio Democrats in putting such a man on the ticket were an attempt to censure his administration and its handling of the war. To Gideon Wells, Lincoln admitted that he was watching the Ohio governor's race with, quote, more anxiety than he had in 1860 when he was chosen president, end quote. All of this affected Rosecrans' situation, because the general was a very popular Ohioan, and the election was to be held on October 9, 1863, that is, less than three weeks after the Battle of Chickamauga. Lincoln would seem to run a serious political risk should he choose to sack Rosecrans virtually on the eve of such a crucial vote, particularly if there appeared to be any chance at all that Rosecrans might then decide to make common cause with the administration's political enemies in the Buckeye State. In the midst of this, Rosecrans sent an innocent, if ill-advised, proposal to Lincoln on October 3rd. He wrote, quote, If we maintain the position at Chattanooga in such strength that the enemy are obliged to abandon their position, and if the elections in the northern states go favorably, Would it not be well to offer a general amnesty to all officers and soldiers in the rebellion? It would give us moral strength and weaken them very much. Well, Lincoln couldn't have objected to the content of this suggestion, since he himself had said repeatedly that holding on to Chattanooga was of great importance. And he was not at all opposed to offering amnesty to surrendering rebels. Rosecrans' proposal even included an expression of proper hopefulness regarding the upcoming state elections, including, presumably, Ohio's. 
Still, though, his unsolicited advice touched a raw nerve in Washington, since it pertained to political matters, when Lincoln was already anxious about the Ohio governor's race, and came at a time when everyone thought Rosecrans' mind should more properly be focused on military matters anyway. To those in Washington, it also seemed a bit suspect that a recently defeated general would be proposing that his government offer peace to the rebels. One source close to Lincoln noted that Rosecrans' suggestion, quote, gave great offense and raised suspicions of political aspirations on his part. Lincoln's reply to Rosecrans made clear that he, the president, would be the one who would judge when would be the appropriate time to carry out such measures. Lincoln said, quote, If we can hold Chattanooga in East Tennessee, I think the rebellion must dwindle and die. I intend to do something like what you suggest whenever the case shall appear ripe enough to have it accepted in the true understanding rather than as a confession of weakness and fear. Even as those in Washington increasingly doubted his fitness to continue in command of the Army of the Cumberland, Rosecrans nevertheless publicly supported Brow in the Ohio governor's race and urged his officers and men to do the same. On October 9th, Brow won a landslide victory over Vallandigham, earning heavy majorities of both the civilian and the soldier vote, including 97% of the Ohioans in the Army of the Cumberland. At this point, Rosecrans was no longer a political necessity, if Lincoln had ever considered him as such, and the president might have dispensed with him at once. Instead, Lincoln continued to put off sacking Rosecrans, hoping perhaps that old Rosie would show evidence he'd recovered his self-confidence and could salvage the situation at Chattanooga. However, a week later, on October 16th, a message arrived from Charles Dana that made further postponement even more difficult. Dana warned, quote, Nothing can prevent the retreat of the army from this place within a fortnight except the opening of the river. And Dana made clear that, in his opinion, Rosecrans was not the man to salvage the situation at Chattanooga. He reported that in the midst of the present crisis, Rosecrans, quote, dawdles with trifles and is, quote, dazed and hazy. Lincoln could hardly deny the truth of Dana's observation, since he himself had previously told one of his secretaries that Rosecrans was acting, quote, confused and stunned like a duck hit on the head. At a cabinet meeting the same day Dana's warning was received, the members voted in favor of replacing Rosecrans with George Thomas. But Lincoln chose a compromise course. You see, he had already decided to set up a sort of super department called the Military Division of the Mississippi, incorporating the departments of the Cumberland, Ohio, and Tennessee. At the moment, those departments were commanded by Rosecrans, Burnside, and Ulysses S. Grant, respectively. Lincoln decided to immediately set up the military division of the Mississippi and place Grant in command of the new arrangement and leave to him the question of whether or not to remove Rosecrans. 
Halleck and Stanton had already anticipated a possible role for Grant in resolving the crisis at Chattanooga, and Halleck, at Stanton's direction, had several days earlier directed Grant to leave Vicksburg and report at once to Cairo, Illinois, to be ready for whatever service Washington might have for him in the near future. And so, on October 16th, the same day Lincoln and his cabinet discussed Dana's alarming message, Grant reported by telegraph that he had arrived at Cairo. That evening, in Washington, orders were drawn up, And the next morning, Grant received a wire directing him to proceed to Louisville, Kentucky, bringing with him his entire staff, ready for immediate operations in the field. He was told an officer from the War Department would meet him in Louisville with instructions. That meant that although no one in southeastern Tennessee knew it yet, the campaign for Chattanooga had already taken a decisive turn. Not in that town, but in Washington. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Decisions at Chattanooga, The 19 Critical Decisions That Defined the Battle by Larry Peterson. This is another volume in this series of books by the University of Tennessee Press, that explore the critical decisions of major campaigns and battles of the Civil War. And one of the early chapters here in Peterson's book deals with Lincoln's decision to consolidate the three Western departments into the military division of the Mississippi and place Ulysses S. Grant in command. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we wrap up this episode, we want to give a shout out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade and thank them for their support of the podcast. So a big thank you to Brenda V, Nell J, Andrew C, Mike K, and Jeremy B. And thanks to William G for his donation. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hey everyone, just a reminder that this episode of the podcast is sponsored by the Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War. Founded in 1881, the Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War is a congressionally chartered, charitable, fraternal organization that preserves the history and legacy of the Union veterans who fought during the Civil War to preserve the Union and end slavery. When you join, you enter a national network of men who form lifelong bonds, honor their heroic ancestors, and promote historic preservation, education, and patriotism in their communities. Based on the principles of fraternity, charity, and loyalty, 
they accept both descendants of Civil War veterans and non-descendants. Visit them today at www.suvcw.org or email them at join at suvcw.org. The views, information, or opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the sons of Union veterans of the Civil War. But what if I say that Ulysses S. Grant's nickname at West Point was Sam? Well, that would be us and not the sons of What if I said that Sam Elliott did a great job playing John Buford (laughs) in the Gettysburg movie? Again, that would be us and not the sons of the... Well, a whole damn Reb Army's going to be here. They'll move through this town, occupy those hills on the other side, and when our people get here, Lee will have the high ground. And they'll be the devil to pay. Rich, come on, man.